0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Brinkenridge, weekdays twelve thirty to three seven seventy CHQR.
1: Well, good afternoon, Alberta. Thanks for being with us here. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, our phone lines are open. We'll have time for your calls in this hour. You can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063 and Calgary, 403-974-8255. Later in this hour, we're going to find out more about what's going on with inflation. September was another big month, uh, an 18-year high in the inflation rate, 4.4%. So that that seems like a lot. And look, I mean, inflation, I mean, that that speaks to the... The cost of everything. So, if uh, prices are going up, that's money coming out of our pockets. Now, part of the way of responding to inflation, typically uh, on the part of central banks, has been to raise inflation, or rather, interest rates. But then again, I mean, if you got a mortgage, you got loans, that's also going to cost you. So, what's driving all of this? How worried should we be? We'll get to that after two thirty. Now, the, the topic off the top of the hour here is probably not totally disconnected from the story about inflation. Uh, Because when the cost of something goes up, even if it's under unusual circumstances, that's going to impact inflation. Like the cost of oil is way up. That's one of the big drivers in inflation. Supply and demand, though, ultimately helps determine what the price of something is. And when it comes to vehicles, there is demand. And as you may know, there is not much supply right now. So there's some, some real chaos in the auto industry. And it all stems from these little things called semiconductors. Not a real problem for the auto industry 50 years ago, but it's a big problem today. This is a crucial component of new vehicles, and there is a big shortage of semiconductors. Now, obviously, it's not just vehicles affected by this. You know, the, the new iPhone, for example, and and um, there are other examples. But yeah, this is causing a lot of chaos in, in the auto industry. So... What is the impact? What does it mean to factories? What does it mean to dealers? What does it mean to consumers? Joining us uh, for some thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Stephanie Walcraft, uh, who is a journalist president of the Automobile Journalists Association of Alberta writes so for Driving.ca, Wheels.ca, Autotrader.ca, and, and other publications. Stephanie, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: So when we talk about, uh, you know, the disruption, the shortages, how bad is it right now in your view?
2: Uh, it's bad. Um, we are hearing that some dealers are, are far below their usual inventory, regardless of the vehicle type, uh, new and used, being affected as well. And um, cars are sitting partially built on lots, from from what we're hearing, um, just needing those those couple of chips to finish off those couple of features that, and the chips are just not arriving. So, um, uh, as, as you may remember, the, the toilet paper shortage from uh, March <laughs> yes. and April of last year, um, the automakers just along with everybody else, didn't foresee that the economy would pick back up this quickly. People were spending more on vehicles, um, not only during lockdown, but also coming out of um, the COVID measures. And uh, that demand is still there and is rising. And um, they simply didn't place the orders early enough to to meet that demand. And so here we are with uh, lots of people wanting to buy cars and none of them to be had.
1: So it's interesting. And so when things slowed down in 2020, Basically, then, you know, the, the the companies cut their orders then, right? So the, this is kind of a consequence from that. The companies cut back on, on their orders, and then they, they decided, well, heck, now things are, are picking back up. We've got to increase those orders. So what what was, what was happened in the interim?
2: Well, a couple of things happened. One is that the, the auto industry actually uh, was very fortunate to be able to adapt quite quickly uh, when lockdown measures came into place. Many aspects of the auto industry were deemed to be essential services, such as dealerships. Um, and found ways to operate either with people not coming into the showrooms and sales being completed online or um, with uh, over time measures being able to be taken so that people could still come in and purchase those vehicles. And so there was ongoing demand throughout the, uh, the pandemic that kept um, supply moving. And then um, the other factor being I don't think anybody really was ready for the fact that all these, these consumers were working from home, making a good living, Um, But not having really much to spend their money on. Nobody's doing their, their, you know, once or twice a year Caribbean European vacations. And so now people are thinking, well, you know, I've saved up a little bit. I've got some money in the bank. I might go get that new vehicle I've always wanted and finding when they get there, it's not there. So what what's going
1: on with these semiconductors? Because I think we are we of the opinion, or you know we, we sort of have this notion now that when it comes to computer chips, semiconductors, all of this stuff, like we, we can just crank that out. We've got uh, an endless supply of all of this stuff. but clearly we're seeing that's that's not the case. So why, why are there shortages here?
2: Well, the auto industry, like a lot of industries in manufacturing, has operated for a long time um, on a global scale and in sort of a just-in-time theory of manufacturing where they would order just what they needed for the orders they had on hand. Everything would happen in just a handful of smaller places in the world. China is a big location. Mexico is another one right now. Um, And there's plants here and there as well. Um, And just because of the, the global Demands on the supply chain for semiconductors. Um, that system of, of just-in-time manufacturing is biting everyone right now. Um, I think the, the uh, in the short and longer term, what we're going to see as a side effect of this is much more local supply chain um, moving, moving the supply chain into more local markets. So that there's more direct control over how items move and a little bit less of reliance on just in time and a little bit more of a tendency to keep inventory as, as companies learn the lessons coming out of the pandemic.
1: Right. And it's not as so though the automakers can say, Hey, you know, we're making vehicles, that's more important than your, your silly little gaming console. We got first <laughs> dibs on the semiconductors, doesn't work that way, does it?
2: Certainly doesn't. Uh, But uh, to your point that you made at the beginning of the show, cars are relying on computer um, technology more than ever. And um, you know, when you think about things like those driver assistance systems, adaptive cruise control, blind spot monitoring, um, there's so much in a car these days that needs computer power to run that people don't even think about how many microchips are sitting under their hoods and. Um, but it's all essential to, to modern-day cars, especially those features that um, that people really are, are looking for. Those sort of higher-end features. I've heard that, that uh, dealerships are telling customers, "You can have that truck you want as long as you don't want a wireless charging pad for your for your smartphone, things oh, yeah. like that," to try to lower that um, demand as much as possible.
1: Well, the demand's there, the supply's not. I mean, that seems like you know, prices. Economics 101 tells us should be going up. Is that what we're seeing?
2: It is what we're seeing. Um, I spoke to a colleague of mine at uh, JD Power Canada just the other day and he told me that um, the, the average transaction price for a vehicle in Canada is now pushing close to $43,000. Um, and we only just crested the $40,000 mark, um, I believe it was sometime in 2020. Um, so the, those, those prices are climbing rapidly. Um, and we're, we're seeing that Canadians are willing to pay for, for their vehicles. This has been a discussion within the auto industry for for quite a while now, is this tendency for dealerships to... um, Everybody knows that that consumers are very focused on their monthly payment when they think about how much they can afford in a vehicle. So we're seeing a lot of dealerships encouraging consumers to go into seven, eight, nine-year financing terms. Um, which isn't a great idea because the vehicles aren't necessarily going to last as long as the financing terms uh, that people are taking. And that creates a potential negative equity situation where people can be in the hole for uh, a vehicle that they're no longer using. But that's a different topic. Um, what we're seeing is that people are being encouraged into these longer financing periods to lower their monthly payment, which on the surface makes it look like, look like they can afford um, a bigger, a more expensive vehicle than what they really can. And so that is um, the end result of that is that people are paying more um, and they're not feeling it so much. They're just bearing the cost through those payments. And um, the automakers are selling more
1: expensive vehicles. Yeah. You made the the toilet paper analogy. And I remember, you know, when there were were weeks where, you know, the shelves were bare or, you know, you'd luck out and you'd see one package sitting there and you'd you'd sprint to grab it. But soon enough, the, the shelves were overflowing. There was more toilet paper than we knew what to do with. Are we going to see a similar kind of wild pendulum swing here when it comes to vehicles?
2: Oh, yeah, this is, this is absolutely a short-term situation. There was the toilet paper and there was the lumber and there's going to be the semiconductors. Everything will come back down to earth eventually as the supply chain catches up. Um, but that doesn't help the people right now in, in Windsor, for example, who are being told that they're going to be sitting at home and um, the second shift being taken out of the minivan production plant there by Philanthus. And, and you know, it's a, it's a short-term situation, but it's got a huge impact on a lot of Canadian families. Yeah, no doubt
1: about it. All right, Stephanie, we'll leave it there. Really appreciate the insight on all of this. Thanks for joining us here today.
2: My pleasure. Thank you. All
1: the best. Uh, Stephanie Walcraft, uh, Auto Journalist, President of the Automobile Journalists Association of Alberta. You can read her at driving.ca, wheels.ca, autotrader.ca, and, and elsewhere. So some so great points on, you know, what, what's driving this whole situation, pardon the pun. And, yeah, basically what happened to toilet paper is, is now happening to semiconductors and vehicles need them. So the vehicles aren't getting made. So, you know, plants are sitting idle. A lot of workers are are sitting at home. And that trickles down to the dealerships. That trickles down to you, the consumer. So, I, look, I mean, <laughs> if you need a vehicle, you need a vehicle. I think a lot of people are sort of at that, that stage. And, and that's typically the case. It's like, okay, well, when do we need a new vehicle? This one's getting up there. It's often not as urgent for people. So, and and... As she says, this is something likely to correct itself somewhat soon, but when exactly, I don't know. So do you do you wait it out? It, it's a tough call. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Uh, let's talk inflation. And it's something we've been hearing more about as of late. Uh, Typically, it's reserved for maybe the monetary policy wongs. It's something that at the moment Canadians are paying a lot of attention to. And and look, Canadians uh, uh, of a certain generation uh, can certainly attest to uh, the very negative consequences of runaway inflation. A lot of younger Canadians uh, probably don't remember that. So we're dealing with obviously very unique circumstances in terms of the pandemic that hit us last year and coming out of that pandemic. So to some extent, I'd, probably we should expect a certain amount of inflation. So we look at the data for September relative to last year, consumer prices are up 4.4%. So that's a level of inflation we haven't seen since February of 2003. Uh, Statistics Canada says uh, the rate would have been 3.5% if it had excluded gasoline prices from the calculation. So that that's a big part of why the rate is what it is, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And we were just talking about semiconductor shortages, uh, shortage of vehicles, increase in the price of vehicles. So a lot of this is specific to the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. Some of it may be the government response. Certainly what we've heard from the opposition is that these levels of spending and borrowing uh, do have inflationary pressure, which is, I suppose, true. But Canada is not unique either in seeing this this level of inflation. So uh, how do we figure out what's going on here? To what extent is this concerning? And, you know, what what might the response be? Do, joining us to talk more about all of this is uh, Trevor Toon, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the, Public, uh, the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Uh, Trevor, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So to what extent should we be surprised by, you know, in this instance, a 4.4% inflation rate? So I
0: think given where things have been going the past few months, this particular month, the 4.4%, that's not itself surprising. I think in part this reflects a number of things that we know are... Uh, sources of pressure for prices to rise. One is that as we've been recovering from the pandemic, a lot of the price decreases that took place last year are being made up for. So a lot of the elevated inflation in recent months is really just getting back to, uh, back to trend after prices dropped. Last year, and then another part of it is, as you mentioned at the top, high global oil prices, and they remain high even now. And so, I would therefore expect October's inflation to be pushed up uh, because of that. And then you combine that with all of the uh, supply chain issues that you also mentioned. I think, yeah, that's that's really the whole ballgame here.
1: It's interesting because you know, Statscan says that you know we can take gasoline out of the equation and come up with a different number, but I guess can you really totally take the cost of fuel, up because transportation costs are directly linked to fuel costs. Yeah. Transportation costs add to, you know, food costs or, sure. or other yeah. goods, right?
0: Yeah. So the consumer price index that we're measuring here, that StatsCan puts together as, as kind of our uh, simple basic measure of inflation, is an average across a whole bunch of goods and services out there, some with price increases, some with price decreases. And it's it's relevant because, yeah, it affects our bottom line as consumers, but it's primarily meant to inform central banks, the Bank of Canada, in their conduct of of monetary policy. And there, it very much is important to distinguish between factors that are fundamental to uh, the market or the supply and demand conditions versus factors that are related to monetary policy. And I think high global oil prices certainly matter for the bottom line of some households, but it does mean that it's not something that the Bank of Canada needs to be as concerned about as if it was a more uniform increases in prices across the board.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because, you know, typically the Bank of Canada has a mandate to try to keep inflation at around 2%. And Mm -hmm. you had an interesting uh, graph that that you posted on on your Twitter page today that up until recently, we were kind of tracking, like we were sort of rebounding to a a situation Mm -hmm. where if we had just stayed steady at 2%, percent, you know, basically we'd be at that same point. But we're now past that. So at what point yeah. does that become a concern?
0: So it becomes a concern when people start to expect inflation to be persistently above the two percent plus or minus one percent that we're typically at. It's a lot easier for central banks to maintain low and stable inflation if everyone expects low and stable inflation, because it determines what uh, the contracts are that we sign with our suppliers, or it affects the wage demands we put on employers, or that they would be willing to offer to employees. And so, when those expectations rise, then it then it makes the Bank of Canada's job a lot harder. And so, I think what would concern me is inflation remaining higher than normal for long enough that people start to behave in a way that expects that to continue in the future we're not we're not seeing these kind of inflationary expectations become unanchored we say uh just yet but they have been rising, so it's certainly increasing the level of concern, and we, we hear that from uh, comments by the, the Bank of Canada governor, for example. Right.
1: Well, and it's, it's an interesting dilemma because typically the response from the central bank to deal with inflation would be to increase interest rates, and mm-hmm. you know Canadians have mortgages, Canadians have loans. Canadians are yeah. carrying a lot of personal debt right now, so increased interest costs, that affects our bottom line in a different way.
0: Yeah, so they have a tough job because of what you just noted there, uh, that changing interest rates does negatively affect some. But, you know, on the flip side, it positively affects others. If you're a saver, having higher interest rates, maybe not such, such a bad thing. So regardless of what they do, there are going to be winners and losers. Yes. Uh, but what makes their job especially hard is that when you change interest rates, the full effect of this, going to be felt through the economy, maybe with a lag of a year to a year and a half. And so they need to make choices today based on where they think conditions are going to be in the future. And you wouldn't want them to act now in response to temporarily higher inflation, because if next year oil prices are lower, the supply conditions improve, and inflation is lower than normal, that they increased interest rates this year, then they might have overcorrected. Yeah. And that'll cost jobs and increase unemployment.
1: Well, it is interesting, too. And this came up during the election campaign because that, that Bank of Canada mandate is soon to expire. So typically, you know, we, you know, there's a hands-off approach here from government, but th- yeah. there is a, a decision to be made, isn't there, about what mm-hmm. kind of inflation target do we want the bank to have?
0: Yeah, and, and I mentioned expectations here. Yeah. That I, I, It's hard to overstate how important it is that our um, confidence in monetary policy and the Bank of Canada remains strong. And so uh, I think there is a very, very strong, and rightly so, pressure to maintain the status quo, to simply renew this mandate, 1% to 3% target, try and aim for 2%, and just to keep that going, because we've been doing that now for decades, to great success. And we really shouldn't be moving away from it. And if we do, it needs to be very, very gradual because credibility in the central bank matters a lot.
1: Certainly, the you know, the, the opposition has accused the government of being a part of the problem that, that high levels of spending, high levels of borrowing, mm-hmm. that can create inflationary pressure. T- to what extent is, is that a factor in Canada right now?
0: So it's hard to really quantify that precisely. And and I'm sure that this will be an episode the researchers for many years Mm -hmm. look back on to try and tease out these effects in a a more precise way. But, you know, just generically, I think, yes, some of it may very well be related to fiscal policy. But let's remember maybe why, like what the mechanisms are here. Well, if prices are rising for certain goods because of supply chain problems, those problems really ultimately stem from ports being... Like There are some bottlenecks here in the ability to deliver goods that are leading to price increases. And part of that is because households are buying a lot of stuff. The, the amount of goods that we're buying is higher now than it was prior to the pandemic. Part of our household ability to do that is because of income support programs from, from governments. And so in that sense, if the inflation is due to our having higher incomes because of the support programs, you know, that's very different than inflation being due to some other factors unrelated to incomes also rising. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's complex. Um, part of it, almost for sure, is going to be related to fiscal policy. Um, but that might just be a, a consequence of something that we would view as a, quote, good intervention.
1: All right. We'll leave it there. Appreciate the insight. Uh, as always, Professor Tim. thanks so much for this. You bet. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, that is Trevor Toome, associate professor, economics, University of Calgary, a research fellow, as well as the U of C's uh, School of Public Policy. So kind of an overview of, of what this all means, you know, wh- where we would expect to see this, where there's some potential concern here. So 4.4% was the rate for uh, September, the highest uh, pace since February of 2003. But, you know, given all of the the uh, things that Trevor Toom mentioned, the price of oil, uh, shortages uh, in the supply chain. What we've seen with the housing market—that a lot of this is not a surprise. So, to what extent do we need some kind of an intervention here? And, and look, to whatever extent you know, government spending is is boosting uh, inflation. You know, as you've been hearing in the news today, a lot of those programs are set to to expire. So, uh, there there would be less of that pressure uh, going into next year. You know, lately, there's been a lot of focus on uh, big tech, social media giants, Facebook in particular. And this isn't new. Uh, Some new revelations from a a former executive at Facebook, the so-called whistleblower, I think has brought uh, some of these issues back to the forefront. And and the practices the company engages in, what they're aware of potentially in in terms of uh, the harms of, of social media. It's it's brought the conversation back to the forefront in terms of what, what if anything, do we need to do about any of this? Does Facebook, does big tech, do social media giants need to be reined in? Does there need to be more oversight? Now, ostensibly, the federal government has been talking about doing this uh, through their Bill C-10, which, uh, you know, because of the, the federal election would have to be brought back. Once Parliament resumes next month. But our next guest says C10 is not the way to address this. That what we need is an independent watchdog uh, that can address big tech and social media giants more directly. Uh, Charlie Angus is the new Democrat MP for Timmins James Bay in Ontario and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mr. Angus, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Great to be on the show. Hello to all my friends in Calgary.
1: Well, we appreciate you making some time for us here today. So, um, first of all, what what prompted you to to bring this issue back to the forefront? How much of this has to do with these recent uh, revelations about Facebook's practices?
3: Well, the whistleblower revelations from Madame Frances Hugan has caused a political firestorm in the United States, and many jurisdictions are now looking into it. and uh, As shocking as these revelations were just about how reckless Facebook is and how mercenary they are and how they they use our private data and manipulate people's use of the platform, it's not surprising at all. And we had an all-parliamentary committee chaired by Conservative Bob Zimmer, myself, uh, Liberal uh, Nathan Erskine-Smith, where we raised a lot of these red flags about two to three years ago to the government of the day and saying, we need to get our heads around this uh, and the government pretty much ignored it so but i 'm thinking, given what we 're seeing coming out of corporate documents on Facebook, we really need to be looking at some fundamental issues about reining in these tech giants so that we actually have some player fair and level playing fields because everybody lives on Facebook. Heck, my wife said I married Facebook, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, but we can use it, but we've got to start dealing with some of the corporate toxic culture there.
1: Now, first of all, in terms of the government's uh, approach to to regulating big tech, Bill C-10, which may or may not come back in in Parliament, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Where where does C-10 miss the mark in your view?
3: Well, Bill C-10 was a political dumpster fire. I don't think Minister Debo really understood the file at all. If you said to the Canadian people, should Facebook be paying uh, into the system? Damn right. Uh, They're not even paying taxes here. So that was what C-10 was supposed to do, was to say, Listen, broadcasters pay into the to the art system, it's how we create, you know, movies, television, all kinds of stuff. Facebook doesn't. But they blew it on this stuff on the user-generated content, and then they got into this whole schlamazel, and they looked to the CRTC uh, as a way of addressing all the problems. Well, Facebook is so much bigger than anything we've dealt with before. Um, We need to look at it in some uh, other ways. And and what it missed the mark fundamentally on is the algorithms. Now, the algorithms are what Facebook uses to basically map who you are, map what you're going to see, and then let you see what you're going to see. Those algorithms are moving people into uh, narrower and narrower windows of conversation. And for people who are susceptible to paranoia, fear, anger... It drives them to the to some pretty extremist places because it's about keeping eyeballs on the screen. And that's what the whistleblowers exposed. And that's what we found out in our parliamentary hearings. It's the algorithms that we got to deal with.
1: Well, sure. The algorithms were about keeping people there. I mean, if if you're interested in, in, you know, comic books, then you're going to see a lot of different posts and and stuff, uh, you know, that that speak to your interest. You know, it's it, it. I, I think it's smart at some level, but at what point does it become problematic or, or worthy yeah, of this kind of
3: regulation? That's the thing. Like I go on YouTube, everybody, you know, I'm I love music, so I get a lot of music feed. But what I think the weaponization of the algorithms is the realization that people who get angry and people who look at more and more sort of narrow stuff spend longer time on it. So I, I put this question to YouTube when they came before our committee. I said, Listen, High school kid wants to look up the Second World War. Great. There's lots of stuff in the Second World War. How come uh, I end up seeing stuff that's promoting Holocaust denial? Well, if you were promoting Holocaust denial on your radio show, there'd be consequences. If the Globe and Mail was promoting it, there'd be consequences. Yet the algorithms are promoting this stuff. So that's the issue, is that they're promoting you to go down rabbit holes that you probably don't want to go down, we need some transparency in how the algorithms are working. That's, that's the fundamental issue. I don't think this is about hate speech or freedom of speech. It's about you're not even getting to see content you probably should see. They're limiting your choice, and they're making deliberate decisions about it. And as Hugan said, it's having some really damning impacts in other jurisdictions where we've seen mass violence in um, Myanmar, Ethiopia, India, uh, where these algorithms can be distorted by people who are pushing some pretty bad agendas, and Facebook shows no corporate responsibility.
1: Well, I don't know that we can criminalize uh, uh, an algorithm. I don't think that's what you're calling for. I mean, specifically, no, uh, what you called for here is yep. is a, a new office, an independent watchdog. What what power or you know what what ability would they have to address? This? Yeah,
3: I think that, they, that let's get to the to the nub of this. So in Canada, we have. Um, you know, the Privacy Commissioner who does extraordinary work. Uh, we have the Ethics Commissioner who's, you know, found Mr. Trudeau guilty a couple of times. These are Offices of Parliament. So this isn't like the CRTC. This would be an office set up with the, tech, the technical capacity to actually understand. I don't understand an algorithm. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it works. Um, but I know that when we see what the Privacy Commissioner has done, they know how they can investigate. So if there are allegations, uh, of widespread disinformation being spread, let let the let the officer of parliament do the investigation with the order-making powers to say to Facebook if they are exploiting this, if they're making undue levels of profit by pushing extremist content, then you know they could then come up with some remedies and they report to the public and reports and they report to ca- Canadians. I think that would be a much so it's a wiser way. I think. Then trying to hammer in that we're going to, you know, to me the CRTC is like the 1980 solution to a 21st century problem, and this isn't just in Canada. We're dealing with this in jurisdictions around the world. So let's let's work with other jurisdictions, but we need some smart regulation here to protect people's use of it, so that people can enjoy it and it's not going to have damaging impacts.
1: But I mean, you know, t- you know, in terms of Facebook, I mean, there's just, you know, millions and millions of people you know, with millions and millions of posts. I, in, are we asking, uh, you know, a, a federal government office to in real time monitor and, and fact check Facebook? How, how do we even begin no, no, to no, police what's no, there? Yeah.
3: It's, again, it's it's this is what we learned from, you know, people who studied Facebook. It's how they're using the algorithms to actually cut off what you see. You're not seeing a whole bunch of posts on Facebook. You're seeing narrow and narrower posts. So if those algorithms are pushing people to uh, more and more extremist content where they're actually not having public conversations anymore, they're going down some really dark rabbit holes, if that's built into the mechanism, well, yeah, I think there should be some corporate accountability there. And the other element that's come up is the fact that they build in addictive tools to keep you on, and Ms. Hogan said, they study this. They know it's having seriously de- damaging psychological impact on young people, yet they're using these technologies now on children. It's just like big tobacco. I mean, everyone said you were free to smoke or not smoke, but we didn't know about the nicotine delivery mechanisms that actually made people addicted and kept them addicted. So, again, I live on Facebook. Uh, you know, people contact me on Facebook. I've, it's a great tool. But there are some corporate manipulations that are having some negative real world consequences and they gotta be accountable just like every other company has to be accountable for their products. So
1: would that mean opening up the books? Would 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 Facebook or other social media companies have to basically share their algorithms with this, this commissioner, this office?
3: Well, they certainly are not going to want to do that, but yeah. that is what I think is going to be coming in many jurisdictions. I think if it 's done through something like the privacy commissioner who you know when he when he goes and investigates, he has the ability to go in and do those checks um, so it's not you 're not giving up the corporate secrets, but you know that someone can go in and look and, and say whether or not there 's problems because that 's what the whistleblowers are saying that Facebook is making their money by deliberately mis- misrepresenting or or twerking the algorithm so you're not just getting content um, and I think that that's that's where we could start to deal with this the other thing I think it's just really important to stress these companies are so much bigger than anything we've ever dealt with they the power that they have they've, they've identified it as they call it a kill zone of innovation that young startups can't even get out of the gate against when you're going up against Amazon Google Facebook their data knowledge is so unprecedented They can basically snuff out the startups before they even get started. So there are negative economic consequences of having companies that powerful. Personally, I think Facebook should be broken up. WhatsApp, Instagram, they should be broken up. You know, we should have other choices online as well. But we're not getting that. That's a much broader conversation. Yeah, we're that's like a
1: competition bureau thing. But that's, so,
3: and that's more through the United States right. that's they're the, they're the ones with the with the power. to hold these guys will count. So we're but talking but a lot
1: of, yeah. We're talking a lot about Facebook, yeah. which, as you say, has been in the news. Yeah. They're they're the biggest. They own these other companies. They're, they're not the only social media company. They're not the only big tech company. So, yeah. when we talk about an officer of parliament for digital rights and technology, what, what's its purview here? Where, where are the the boundaries of what it would have jurisdiction over?
3: Well, I think that you need something specific for the for the kind of mass platforms that are, you know, say Google, Facebook, um, because they're there's so much in a league that you know people are running their own websites, I and mean, that's not the job. Of the,
1: but I mean, is that Twitter? Know. Is it Reddit? I mean, yeah. I mean you know, where, where does it end?
3: Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's someone. If, if there are issues that can be brought to them. Again, with the Privacy Commissioner, the Privacy Commissioner decides whether or not to follow up on a complaint, yeah. um, ignores a lot of them, says, no, that's not really my mandate. But what we've seen with the Privacy Commissioner it was a Canadian Privacy Commissioner who exposed Facebook's uh, loopholes that allowed um, all the private data of people to be taken by Cambridge Analytica. It was a Canadian Privacy Commissioner who identified that in 2008 if we had had the power of making To force Facebook to close those loopholes, what happened with Cambridge Analytica, which ended up happening with the undermining of the Brexit vote, wouldn't have happened. So you need an officer who can actually go in if there needs to be an investigation. can check it out. If it's fine, fine. But I think you see better corporate behavior if they know that there's actually someone who's got the, the power to do that. The CRTC right now, they'll just bring their lobbyists. Uh, you know it's like we see it with big tech when have we ever gotten a lower uh, deal on cell phones because of the CRTC how about never right (laughs) it's not it's not it's not a system I think that can handle something as complex as Facebook
1: all right well we we don't have parliament resuming for another month I guess we'll wait and see what if anything the government's prepared to do on on this front I I, I don't expect then that you got any kind of uh, reaction from the government to this any sense that they're they're open to this
3: I, I, I definitely know that we have support with parliamentarians from all parties on this because we've done the work together. And I think this is not, should not be a, uh, this definitely shouldn't be a partisan issue. This should be about civic engagement and the democratic rights of citizens. You're going to go online, you're going to participate, you may say some stupid things, but how are we doing it so that we're not being, our conversations are not being torqued and driven um, by some corporate bad actors at Facebook or other tech giants.
1: All right, we'll leave it there. Charlie Angus, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thank Appreciate you, it. You take care. All right, there you go. Charlie Angus, a New Democrat MP, uh, Timmins, James Bay, uh, says C10's a bit of a dumpster fire. Well, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, is, is this something that's needed, though? Do we need uh, an independent officer of parliament to be responsible for to have jurisdiction over social media giants or big tech? Are they a problem? You know, it's interesting because we, we talked about this just recently. We heard from one author, Robbie Suave, from recent magazine who says, you know, it's one of those things where you've got a lot of people on the left who hate Facebook, a lot of people on the right who hate Facebook, and it's kind of for different reasons, right? So there's a long list of complaints that people have about Facebook. What, what is the problem we're trying to solve here? And would this be a solution to that?